Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. My guest today is Gilman Louie. Gilman is the CEO of America's Frontier Fund, a technology and investment platform focused on the critical technologies and industries that are going to define America's ability to lead in the 21st century. Gilman has a super interesting background, everything from building video games in the 1980s and 1990s, working at Hasbro, to also setting up the venture capital fund at the CIA. 1999, which actually invested in Palantir and a bunch of really important tech companies that really defined the 2000s and 2010s. Now, in this conversation, we discuss his work at AFF, AI, the future of domestic resiliency, and once again, all of the industries and processes that are going to define our ability in coming years. Hope you all enjoy this conversation, and AFF's doing a lot of work across the country, so definitely check out the work they're doing. I've included links in the show notes and the bio as well here, too. Hope you all enjoy this conversation, and of course, a huge thank you to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting the work of this podcast. Gilman Louie, welcome to The Realignment. Oh, it's great to be here, Marshall. I normally don't like kicking off an episode by asking a guest to introduce themselves and their background. It's kind of a lazy cheat. But in this case, I think it's actually deeply relevant because your career has been so varied across so many different industries. So for the context of our conversation around frontier technologies, investment, and the technological competition in the 21st century, can you introduce the aspects of your career that are most relevant to a listener who's tuning in to hear about that? Okay, I won't talk about Pokemon, I won't talk about Tetris, and I won't talk about Falcon or Hasbro <laughs> on one side. Uh, I've, I've been involved in national security now for a while. My, my first deep uh, dive into national security when I was asked to lead up an effort for the CIA called uh, InQtel. And that was way back in 1999. It was this idea that we could get... Um, we needed to find the best technology for the U.S. intelligence services to be able to prosecute what it needed to get done in terms of protecting the United States, particularly around information technologies, because we were worried about you know, a potential Pearl Harbor. And this you had to put this in context back in 1999, right? And so the fear was that we would have all the information to determine that an attack was imminent. But we wouldn't be able to put the pieces together because the information would be buried in silos. So Incatel was set up. You know, we we invested in companies, helped create companies like Palantir, um, Keyhill, which later on became Google Maps and Google Earth, um, and a number of other technologies. And uh, unfortunately, the idea was prescient in that uh, 9/11 took place, and then it kind of after 9/11, right? It became more than an interesting activity to do, but it became an imperative that the U.S. government needed the best technologies to go forward. So fast forward to a couple years ago, I had just come off the uh, National Security Commission for Artificial Intelligence. Um, and, you know, the thing about AI is AI touches everything. There, there isn't anything that AI doesn't touch. And you know, this is, again, before chat GPT. And our fear and, and our message to the Congress, and we were a uh, a government, congressional, and White House appointed commission to look at how do we make sure that the U.S. continues its lead in AI, that we don't cede control of this really critical technologies to parties which have a different point of view on how it could be administered, both for governing and for social benefit, right? Um, and so we put out this huge report. So I got 750 page reports. It's great bedtime reading. It's about this big, <laughs> you know, it's just fantastic. Um, and, and, and we reported it out to the Hill and everybody was excited. The white house was excited. And then they did everything pretty much what we recommended, right? You know, pass the chips act. Um, this, this last week, the pr president uh, released the executive orders around AI, um, all around these areas. But what was critical for us a couple of years ago is a realization that if the United States and its allies don't lead in the development of the next wave of technologies, it could be catastrophic for the nations, not just on the national security side, but economic, social, all of it. Because, you know, 
all these technologies are interrelated. Uh, AI needs microelectronics, right? Next generation of chips. That's why we've been hearing about restrictions of certain classes of chips being sold um, to places like China for fear of providing the Chinese technologies that could be used in military and intelligence systems. Uh, the energy, uh, because of climate, um, and, and where that energy comes from. We, we've seen how energy has been weaponized and uh, between the Russian and Ukrainian crisis that's uh, over in, in the European theater. And on the other side of that, you know, advanced communications, uh, 5G, Huawei. So we created, we said, let's create a nonprofit that does two things. One is works on the technical issues and the policy issues that we need to make sure that these technologies continue to be nourished, developed on democratic principles, working with both great uh, companies and entrepreneurs, not only here in the US, but with our allies to build out a trusted technology ecosystem that the rest of the world can be built on for the next 20 to 30 years. Um, so that's the concept of, um, of AFF or America's Frontier Fund. Uh, the last part of this is for us to pull this off because you know the United States is not China. I mean, we're not going to compete with China by being Chinese, right? That's you know that should not be in our playbook. But what what is clear is that we need to align capital markets with these national priorities. So you put industrial policy together with capital market focus technology, innovation, and scientific discovery, right? And once again, America can continue to really, you know, lead the rest of the world for the next 20 years and show how these technologies should be appropriately used versus misused. So um, we, this has been a great journey so far. Yeah, and here's a question that came to mind as I was prepping for this episode. The broad focus of what you're trying to do, obviously, is help the U.S. win this global technological competition in the 21st century. And on the one hand, I think that's an accurate description of the effort, but on the other hand, it's a little abstract for folks who are operating in the various spaces we're describing, everywhere from the scientist at a, at a university to an investor or actual company. But order is actually waking up saying, like, that's what I do every single day. And if we think about, let's think of 1940, um, FDR is saying, hey, we did 2,000 planes a year last year, we need to do 50,000. If it's 1961, the explicit goal is we're going to beat the Soviets to the moon by 1970. So in this world that we're describing today in the year 2023, what are some concrete accomplishments that we could focus on as organizing principles for the next decade or so? Yeah, well, let's start at the highest levels. The highest levels is building an ethical framework around everything that we're building, right? And, and, and this is really important because the, back in the 80s, when we were youngsters, some of us were youngsters, uh, we, we thought, hey, technology is neutral. We just worry about building the technology and everything, you know, a thousand flowers will bloom. Turns out technology is not neutral. It's highly biased to the, the culture of the people who are building the technology. It's, it's, it's not a surprise the internet is built the way it's been built because it was built by technology entrepreneurs, right? So the whole monetization of the internet is based on that kind of framework that the, the ability to have information flow freely was based on principles when we actually created the internet in the first place. So, so now, you know, what are the concrete steps? So the first one is, uh, can we put an ethical framework around what we're doing, particularly around things like AI? But it's it, but it's not just AI, right? I mean, we talk about IP standards for um, the next generation of 6G, right? That that's going to be a global contest. I think the the Chinese have a different view of what you know traceability and privacy than the Europeans than the United States. So so. We need to do that. That's concrete step number one. Number two, we cannot be dependent on another country's supply chain or technology base that allows a single country or a small group of countries to dictate whether or not uh, we can prosecute national security as well as economic um, success for, for our citizens. And so... You know, that's a pretty straightforward thing, whether it's a chip, an F-150, right, uh, uh, a drug or 
um, uh, a food product. We we need to say, hey, we need to make sure our supply chains are resilient. That's not to say decouple. I know there's this big debate between decouple and de-risking and the Chinese are saying it's exactly the same thing. It's not the same thing, right? We don't want to end trade with China or with some of these other nations because we think a, a healthy global economy is a good thing. But we also can't be in a position where somebody can say, you know what, I don't like your policy. I'm going to turn off your energy. I'm going to turn off your chips. I'm going to turn off your food supply. I'm going to turn off your ability to have safe water. I mean, those fundamental things need to get done. And then on the company side, well, we've had a huge outflow of, of market capital because market capital goes to wherever markets are efficient. We get that. but. If nation states can put their thumb on the scale so that all the capital goes to one place on a non-level playing field, that's not okay, right? Because that means that uh, you can have major manipulations in both market and talent that's out there. And so, again, measurable outcomes are are the playing field's level, right? and, and, And at the end of the day, on a level playing field, we believe that a dollar invested in democracies, particularly here in the United States, is a better bet than betting somewhere else. And the markets will take over for that. And so those are just some examples of measurable things that we can do, right, in the years ahead that provides prosperity and security at the same time. Something I'm curious about then, and this goes to your experiences and the way that um, AFF is set up. How do the pieces of the puzzle in the American system fit together? Because if we're speaking in the Chinese context, you could basically say, look, there's this top-down, vertically integrated system where someone identifies this objective and then it's given to this person and so on and so on and so forth. But here, if we're talking about innovation, we have to talk about, once again, the professor is developing the cutting-edge research. We have to talk about a VC firm. We have to talk about a government official. How do we fit these puzzles together? in a way that still retains the innovation advantage that comes from how decentralized our system is. But yeah, the, the centralized systems feel better right? at some level, right? I mean, because somebody goes, hey, yeah, I, I, I got a 10-year plan. I got a 20-year plan. I got a 2049 plan. And we're all going to march to that plan, right? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to march all my resources. I'm going to anoint you know, national champions and winners ahead of time. Right. And I'll mass labor and capital. And I'll use nation state power to advantage right our ability to prosecute this going forward. Okay. That feels good. The problem with those models is A, you got to have a really good crystal ball. I mean, like, mm-hmm. like your crystal ball has to be perfect. And we've seen this play out, you know. The USSR used to have these five and 10 and 20 years plans. It didn't help them. Right. Number two is your leader has to be all knowing, right? To make the right decisions, to appoint the right, anoint the right people, right? To um to have enough ability to define what the future is going to look like. Okay. In the predefined version of the future, the brilliance of the American system and democracies and capitalism is the best minds rise to the top. The ability for surprises to come out of the system because people can pursue different lines without having to ask for permission to pursue it, whether you're a researcher, a technologist, or even a major corporation, right? Every one of these are what we call a shot on go. Mm -hmm. And more shots on go leads to success. You know, Marshall, remember like uh, three years ago, Everybody thought China was going to win on AI because they had control of all the data, right? They controlled all the data, right? They they have a you know a command system. They were going to beat in AI, and out of the blue, this nonprofit in the Mission District of San Francisco like comes up with generative AI and ChatGPT and changes the world, right? And you know, and this is not just a U.S. phenomenon because. The, the most important thing that we have to offer is our aspirations. You know, it's funny. You, the American dream is the same dream that, you know, Europeans, Middle Eastern, 
countries have they are even the Chinese have that same view, right? Like the, like we want to aspire to allow people to be what they can be, but we have a different viewpoint of how much control mm-hmm. we need over the system in order to produce that. And you know, if I was to be, you know, today kind of a what we call going long on the country. I go long on the U.S. because in spite of all of our problems, because democracies are really messy, as you all know, <laughs> very, very messy. Um, at the end of the day, best ideas, best people win. And I think that will continue to be the case for the next 30 years. And this is where everything you just said becomes really interesting um, on two levels. So let's go one at a time to level one. I know you were asked about this in a recent podcast you appeared on, um, but I'll re-ask the question when you're articulating all of the coordination problems inherent to a centralized system, um, you could cite the examples of various failures of the Soviet Union and communist China during especially the 1950s, the Great Leap Forward, et cetera. Um, to what degree can AI, the best case version of AI, separate from ethical concerns, solve these coordination problems that bedeviled previous efforts at central planning? Well, and you know, I think AI is a facilitator. Right. And an accelerant. It's a it's a little bit like a catalyst. Um, so one of the challenges in any kind of coordination is okay, we have we we have way too many pieces to coordinate. Um, so that's problem number one. And two, even if we can coordinate it, a surprise, a misalignment, um, something that's not on a roadmap kind of throws the whole system upside down. The the power or promise of AI. Because AI is still young. I mean, it's as powerful as generative AI is, it's, it's not the end all to be all. It's just the next logical step where we're heading on the AI journey. But AI can actually help humans amplify the reach, be much more agile in their decision making by proposing ranges of alternatives because they can analyze data much faster than humans can iterate. And if we have the right kinds of models, we can actually actually simulate what the results could be a billion times before we actually go off and do the decision. You know, so you know, like in the mm-hmm. back of me, there's a little chess set over this computer controlled set. So actually, that chess set's a chess champion back in 2015, right? Just before AI using more traditional methods. Yeah. And 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 look, what the AI does when it plays chess, the the more modern versions of AlphaGo and Alpha Chess does. What they do is. It learns chess based on its own set of learnings. It learns because it does things a billion times. Mm-hmm. It uses an approach. So from a coordination plan, right, we can use simulation and we can use modeling and AI guided by human input, leaving the choice to the human for the machines to help us create a range of alternative paths and help us understand the potential results of those paths before we choose to make it versus today, it's sort of like a little bit of, you know, make a move, look around, make a move, look around and hope that your plans can be nimble enough. So I think it can have a huge effect. Now, also AI could also create a more totalitarian environment as well. Mm-hmm. So in this, remember I said that, that AI, you know, technology is not neutral. The, the way a authoritarian government might use AI is very different than the way a democratic government might use AI, right? Uh, democratic citizens who are using AI to build out possibilities may get suppressed in an author- authoritarian regime because that possibility represents risk mm-hmm. and a challenge, right? Like we love challenge. We we love you know the American experiment is an experiment is an ongoing experiment every every day we try to perfect our democracies and it may be like it's up and down at any moment in time but overall we're directionally trying to continue to improve you know this great experiment called democracy right the, to- the totalitarian authoritarian governments don't want experiment <laughs> they want control so they will use AI very differently they like they'll use it for things like facial recognition. For mm-hmm. you know, social scoring for behavior modification in terms of the way people think, for the use of information technologies to make sure everybody's in the party thinking along a particular path, right? A very different use of the technology than the way we would use the technology. 
And something I'm curious about, given what you just said, is how do we balance the potential and innovation that could come with AI with our justified fear and skepticism around optimism in these spaces, especially as we're coming out of the social media era where everyone's very excited at first and then left, right, and center for their own reasons are very unhappy for where we ended up. So how do we balance those two issues? You know, I, I, I tell the story. I, I don't know if you're old enough, Marshall, you remember the you know, 1984 Super Bowl when Apple came out with the commercial 1984. I was born. And, I was born in the 90s, so it's one of those things. Where I've, I've heard. Right, right. I've yeah, heard tales of this. Go back. You go back to the YouTube. This is on YouTube, <laughs> right? So basically, the, you know, there's a black and white scene, and there, there are a bunch of you know re really kind of Orwellian scene. Uh, you know, there's a single person that kind of looks a little bit like a you know an authoritarian leader which was supposed to be IBM back in then days, right? <laughs> right, right. Just, you know, just kind of like saying, we shall do whatever it is. And everybody's kind of leaning forward. And then suddenly this this beautiful Olympian, she's running down, she takes a hammer, right? Throws it to the screen, it blows up in a billion pieces. And it goes, introducing the Apple Macintosh, why 1984 won't be like 1984. Well, it turns out we created 1984, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, lots of the things that we've done on the internet today, it, it kind of, empower some of our worst fears. It didn't mm -hmm. do what we wanted it to do. And there are a couple of lessons that we've learned from that. First, first of all, as I said earlier, technology is not neutral. We need ethical frameworks as we start this journey, not at the end of the journey, trying to fix it on the back end. Number, number two, we really, um, our, 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 our fears and our skepticisms needs to be taken seriously. It needs to be integrated into how we build things, right? Um, it's sort of like uh, the Wright brothers when they're, you know, they, they built the first airplane, right? So now the question is, how do you make it safe for everybody to fly? What should be the standards? There's a role for government. There's a role for industry. There's a role for innovators, right? And they all have to be working, right? And they have to have intersection sets where there's collaboration with that. If everybody kind of goes off and does their own separate thing, right? It's a random walk. And that's just given the power of these technologies too dangerous. So I I think, and you're seeing this come out of the, 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 the White House today, right? Where it's like, we need to be collaborative. We need to be collaborative with the people building the technologies, the people trying to monetize the technologies, the science that's underneath it. We need our institutions to double down on things like safety and ethics, right? And fair use. And we have to partner with our allies to make sure that what we're building, right, also meets the standards of other nation states so that we have the appropriate adoption of these technologies. Not to control it as the way some countries will want to control it. Mm -hmm. We'll put it up guardrails, um, accelerate the benefits of these technologies and de-risk the things that we fear about these technologies. And there needs to be a conversation, a dialogue that takes place, quite frankly, with the American people, right? Again, different systems, different approaches, right? But we need to do that. And if we do that, I think our technologies win. I'd love to ask you, oh, it was a good question, but praising myself before I ask a question, but talk to me, talk to me more about what a dialogue with the American people looks like, because from a pure, I'm just a bill on a Capitol Hill perspective, cap, you know, thing here, uh, conversation with the American people would hypothetically mean our representatives in Congress who that we elect and we delegate authority to, but at the same time, we're also at an era of near bottom social and institutional trust. So it's one thing to say, consult your congressman or congresswoman in the 1950s when we're in a period of high social trust. It's another thing to say that um, during a period of low social trust. And there's also, and I'm sure you know this, an incredibly low amount of trust in DC when you're coming from Silicon Valley. So it's not just like the actual constituents that are skeptical of the representatives, it's the leaders and the workers that the companies we're describing here. So how do you think we should navigate having these conversations as a society that once again has to tie together parts of the puzzle, but those individual pieces are deeply skeptical of one another. Well, first of all, it's, um, it was satisfying when we 
came out with the AI commission report that we had both sides of the aisle, like say, we got to do this, right? It was great to have the White House say, we got to do this. It was great. The industry supported the CHIPS Act, right? I mean, and and, and so there, there's some, there, there's a glimmer of hope, right? It's not, mm-hmm. you know, totally based on the stress. But first thing is we got to get people smarter on this. Like, so so staffers and even some members, right? Some of the universities out there are saying, look, we'll, we'll, we'll create a one-day short course for you guys, just so you can understand what all of this means, because these are very technical subjects. And it's very difficult if you're trying to get, as a Congress person, trying to get legislation out, right? And oh, by the way, can you take a week out and learn about AI, right? That's, that's it's a hard thing to do. But we have to first get a common understanding of what science fiction and what's real and what the opportunities and the risks are, right? So, so it's a leveling the playing field. Second, we had to translate to the American public, right? What these technologies could offer in terms of the benefits to society, if done, if done right, right? How it can be transformative to medicine, education, right? Economic expansion, empowerment, free speech, and how potentially, if things go off the guardrails, what the real risks are. And that's a conversation that we all need to have. You know, our elected officials need to be a part of that, leading a part of that conversation, but having it in the town halls, how it affects from the moment you are born till the day you are buried, how these technologies could impact our life. You know, somebody asked me kind of like, um, how do you think about the future, right? I mean, how do you do this? Because it's like, there's, there's too much for us to understand. And I said, can you envision a better world in 20, pick a date, 2035, let's say, mm-hmm. 2035. What the world could look like if this stuff, you know, upper right-hand corner stuff, but everything works, what the world will look like for, for not just for the country, but for bring it down to the individual citizen, mm-hmm. right? If, I, if I'm a skilled laborer, you know, experienced electrician, what does this world look like? What does the world look like to raise a, a child? What does this world look like if I was a doctor, right? If, if everything goes right. And then also what's the risk where it could go wrong? Like uh, what could happen and paint that picture and have mm-hmm. a dialogue of, you know, all, you know, those four quadrants between, you know, technology, innovation, benefits of society, risks and, and going on the wrong side. And then adopt both policies and incentives to make sure it goes up and to the right. But but if we continue to have let's use each one of these things as a way to get after each other, you know, as a way to like, oh, this is a great new fight. Let's, you know, we're gonna we're gonna deal with either the killer robots or you know, just let all the big tech companies do whatever they want, those two extremes. Um that that's not going to yield for us. I think this is where your background in the tech industry gets interesting because as you are articulating the need to make clear to the American people the benefits of these technologies, you made me think of stories, once again, stories I've read about um, in the 1970s and 1980s in the sense of, you know, Bill Gates is saying, um, you know, someday there's going to be a personal computer on every American's desk in a way that we could have had a version of this conversation that would have been over the radio or on, you know, early cable television would have been saying like, we have to make clear why every American is going to want a personal computer on their guest, on their desk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but obviously over time, we see very obvious benefits of yeah. the internet, right? Right now you and I are experiencing that you're in San Francisco. I'm in Austin. We can just do this. However, I think it's clear at a societal level that various sides of the aisle and American society are not happy with how that internet journey ended up, not just on a social media level, but also at a, you know, we work in these white collar spaces. If you're a coal miner in West Virginia, you're not going to feel the same way about this issue. So what are lessons from the history of the development of the internet when that vision went from vision to reality that we could take for the next 20, 30 years when it comes to AI? Yeah. First of all, I, I think that the vision needs to be a vision for all Americans, not just for a certain population side, right? For metropolitan areas benefited from the technology innovation, you know, ecosystems, you know, it's, it's uh, Boston, San Francisco, Seattle, uh, San Diego, lesser extent, 
came later, you know, Austin, Denver, there's some, there's some smaller ones with it. But but that's where 90% of the job innovation jobs took place. But all the rest of the jobs got exported out, right? On on you know, lean manufacturing, we fabulous, you name name that revolution that kind of gutted middle of America um during this revolution. The next go round, we had to start with all of America. Because all of America has something to offer. You know, in these deep technology spaces, it's not just the coastal cities. You know, you got great centers of excellence and research in places like Purdue and UT Austin and Arizona State University and, you know, uh, Florida University and, and across the country. So first of all, we got we got to get everybody involved. Number two, as we begin this next revolution, this next revolution is the intersection between information, right? Uh, the ability to, to automation and manufacturing, right, and production. So it means also building out the trades, the skilled labor that's necessary to build kind of this kind of new future for us. And it is about activating these research universities, these R1 universities throughout the country to actually bring the talent and keep the talent in those places so they don't have to go run off to the coastal cities as the only way for them to be successful, which gutted, you know, the, the, the middle of America. We can't do that anymore. I think at AFF, we are very focused and on working with building out more local ecosystems. You know, it's the reason why we went to New Mexico, for example, because New Mexico has the highest PhD concentration per capita of any state in the union. It has, you know, two national labs, has the Air Force Research Labs, has great universities, right? But it's never been able to like monetize that and build out an ecosystem to match its, its technical talents. Same with the middle of America. So that's why you see so much activity around, um, these new ecosystems because one is great talent great workforce availability and commitment that's what it takes to build anything that's great so this time around again with forethought right we need to actually go to those places excite people right provide the infrastructure investment we need to be able to build great companies great ecosystems and great universities because that's what it takes to lead. And at the end of the day, putting in that leadership and ethical framework that makes America, America. You know, I, I love what you just said, and I want to really dial in on something because folks might not understand this. So um, there've been a lot of efforts over the past decade or so to spread, spread the tech wealth in the sense of developing tech ecosystems, not just in the United States, but kind of across the world. And it seems as if the problem you just kept running into is that when it just came to like, think of like a SaaS business or a social media company, so many of these like paragons of 2010s tech success at the end of the day, you really could do them anywhere. So what is a founder most likely going to do? They're going to move to SF. They're going to move to New York City. They're going to move closer to the LPs, to the venture firms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when it comes to deep tech specifically, what is it that differentiates the quest to build up these ecosystems that's explained by the fact that these categories are just so different? Yeah, yeah. first of all, as you pointed out, they're very different. You know, you can have an IT revolution because I can code anywhere. But I'll code in places where there are a lot of coders. You know, I can go to lunch with coders. I can hang out with coders, right? I can, you know, go down to the Starbucks, come pitch a business plan because of VCs across the street, right, on Sand Hill Road. And, you know, that that's the way that ecosystem worked. But, but people don't realize the only reason why that ecosystem worked was because of all the hard work and investment that took place 30 years before that that built Silicon Valley, right? Silicon Valley was actually built by the Department of Defense during World War II as a center of excellence around electronics and radar technologies, right? And then their kids, right, glommed on to the, the transistor revolution, even though it was discovered up in Bell Labs in New Jersey, right? It went to Silicon Valley because the DOD wanted to implement that. Then aerospace moved, Lockheed moved then, right? And then we had the space race. And then so all those ingredients then created an ability for us to build things like microelectronics and chips, which was a huge investment. And then, you know, it's only been the last 10 or 15 years that we've gone to the SaaS software 
only model because you know software eats everything. At least that was the theory. This time around, if you want to build a next generation fission or fusion reactor, that requires physical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. If you want to go in and do hydrogen or clean tech, it requires physical infrastructure. If you want to create next generation manufacturing plants, you're not going to do it in San Francisco, right? Where there is no land and everything costs way too much. You're going to go to a place, right? Where you're going to have a stable workforce who's like dedicated to build these things out. And then on the centers of excellence around the technologies, right? We're the two best centers of excellence around microelectronics, right? Georgia Tech and Purdue, right? That That's the people working on the next wave of technology that would transform microelectronics. Yes, AI may be in places like San Francisco because it's fundamentally more software-oriented, but mm-hmm. in all those other areas, right, we need to go to where there's quality labor, dedicated workforces, stability, and great research. And the last thing is, what what did we learn from the pandemic? You don't have to go to work. That's the other thing, right? I mean, in the old days, it's like you had to be in San Francisco, Boston, Seattle, or San Diego because, because you had to be there physically present. Turns out, while some things does require physical presence, some things can be done distributed. So we can take the lessons that we had out of the pandemic. We can take a look at where can we build out necessary infrastructure to do things like manufacturing, like chips, as an Mm -hmm. example of that. And then um, double down on those places, right? And return those jobs back to the United States as we de-risk. Speaking of uh, jobs in the United States, I think there's an interesting dilemma that comes about when we're discussing winning and leading in critical technologies. So think of the semiconductor. Everyone's focused on how 90% of you know chips semiconductors are, are, are coming from Taiwan, which introduces a really um, unhelpful geopolitical pressure when it comes to the US, China, um, and Taiwan. But critically, um, you know, the modern semiconductor industry was actually birthed in the United States. Um, so there's actually a difference between innovating critical technologies and actually retaining the ownership and resiliency therein. So how moving forward do we basically prevent uh, the semiconductor story from replicating itself? Because it'd be really unfortunate if we spend the next 10 years building the best version in all these yeah. different categories you're investing in. And then in 2070, you know, my children and my grandchildren are saying, wow, why did we let this thing go all the way to Brazil when we were the ones who invented it in the first place? Yeah, I mean, ASML is a great example. Right. I mean, where technology was developed here in the United States, right, and and offered to American companies that, that they didn't pursue it, and then it had to go to Europe because and and now is one of the principal places where um, microelectronics equipment manufacturing is done to be on the leading edge. You know, I I think this is why the resilience part is so important. Right. Again, a lesson we learned from the pandemic: if you're totally dependent on one nation. It doesn't matter if you agree with them or do your best friends. If something ever happens to that particular nation, mm-hmm. right, your entire supply chain is at risk. So risk is different today than it was 20 years ago. You know, when we talk about 20 years ago about risk, you know, we worried about, hey, you know, if we don't offshore, right, we're not going to be competitive. So we have to mm-hmm. offshore. We have to go where labor is cheap. We, you know, we need marginal improvement, just-in-time manufacturing, you know, zero slack models, right? Because because anything less than that makes us non-competitive and, and that's risk. Risk today is different. Risk today means if any one of those things that is a critical dependency doesn't happen, you're out of business. You know, when you see car lots of trucks and automobiles lining up in lots because we can't ship them because we don't have the chip, the one chip, not even a good one. <laughs> we can't even, you know, when there's one chip that's holding up the line. That's that's bad. So I, I think when you think about where we're heading to, you know, 2070, right? Mm-hmm. Did we de- Did we actually de-risk our economy? Again, it doesn't mean that you onshore everything, but what it does mean is you needed to have a distributed model that leverages more than one source 
for critical technologies. And you build the population who's able to build out industries that, you know, keep many of the, the key areas here within, you know, the United States. You know, that actually, with that answer, you take us exactly back to the start of the conversation of like, what's the actual goal? And it seems to me, um, a listener to this podcast would conclude, okay, the goal here is de-risking the American economy um, from the risk that we're discussing here. So, you know, put on your your, your venture capitalist hat and pretend that we're doing, a, you know, a pitch deck. What do you see as the points of failure when it comes to this de-risking mission and opportunity that we have over the next decade? First one is talent, mm. right? If we don't increase our talent, it's a combination of homegrown talent and continue on our most competitive advantage that we have over our competitor states. You know, the best minds of the world want to come to the United States. Even with all of our problems, they still want to come to the United States. We, we, we got to get through immigration reform in one version or another because we cannot turn talent away. Um, and that leverage that talent and build out our own capacity for talent. So talent is number one. I, I think that the, the second thing on, on as a venture capitalist, you, you think about this, is how do we have the right infrastructure? You know, the, the, the U.S. led the way in 4G LTE, which has created trillions of dollars of economic growth, right? We blew it with 5G. Right, we just we, we we walked away. We didn't do the investments right. Um, we didn't get the spectrum strategy right. Huawei basically took it, stomp on Thomson and Nokia. There was no U.S. In industry, and then we were playing defense. Like, oh, don't put Huawei up, and people got to go. Great, what do we put up? Don't put up Huawei. Right, that's not a good enough answer. So, so we need to make sure that not only do we have the talent. We also have the infrastructure to support this. And remember, this infrastructure is not going to be cheap. To, to do, if we want to have an AI-driven economy, large language models are very expensive to build. You know, it's mm -hmm. five or $10 billion. So, you know, only maybe a handful of hundreds of people actually have built a large language model. And, and many of that's not in universities. So if we want to lead the world in university research around AI, we need to have an infrastructure that allows our best minds to get access to the technology. Same thing is true with alternative energy and many of these other things that we're working on. And I think the other thing is allies and partners. Look, no one, terror, if, you, if you look at the world right now, mm -hmm. you can identify four major eco economic centers that you had to be successful in to build a large global company, right? Or enterprise or technology threat. So it's North America, it's Europe, it's China, and it's India. It doesn't mean that other places like Korea and Japan and other great countries don't matter. But you, when you kind of just look at it from an economic point of view, you got to say, you got to win in at least two of those markets. If you're just in one market, like a U.S. only market, good luck if you're you're a six G manufacturer. Just not enough base stations being used here in the United States, right? You, you need one at least minimally one of the other markets to adopt your solution. If you're in three of the four, right, you're humming along. And if you're four of the four, you're Apple or VW or, or one of those okay. kinds of players, right? So in that world going forward, you have to allow your allies to participate in the economic revolution these technologies are having. They're not just your partners for supply chain. They're your partners because economically, it's the only model that works, right? And so um, we had to also have the right policies in place, right, through multilateral engagement, bilateral engagement to go off and do this. And AFF has a role to create that dialogue. You know, we're working with the Quad Nations right now called the Quad Investor Nation uh, Network, of India, Japan, Australia, and the US. Why? Because those four economies combined represents 37% of the world's output. That's twice as, more than twice the size of China, mm -hmm. right? So when we say, well, we can't afford to give up the Chinese market, right? I have to go in and deal with them. And I have to like become less democratic. No, you don't have to. Right, because the rest of the world is a much bigger place, 
And if you want to be successful, we want to have technologies that align with our value systems, we need to work with our partners to do. I think the you know last big question before we just finish up on uh, going back to your your bio would basically be this 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 deep tech conversation we're having this articulation of how AFF is taking a different approach to venture capital is really fascinating to me. Something I wonder is so many of I think folks' ideas around how venture capital works, how company building works, they are really based on these ideas from the 2000s and 2010s. Like you read like a Paul Graham essay. Paul, I love Paul Graham essays. Paul Graham, founder of Y Combinator, he has these like great essays, like do things that don't square that don't scale. Why is right. Stripe a billion dollar company like a unicorn? It's because you know the Collison brothers are walking into coffee shops and showing people with their laptops and asking them to critique the company. Um that those actual playbooks are how a generation of founders started building their companies. But obviously, there's no version of do things that don't scale when we're talking about nuclear reactors. Exactly. Um, and in all these deep tech categories, something I would love to see from AFF, frankly, um, especially because you all do a lot of writing, is like writing out the the playbook and the frameworks that people could just kind of pick up and just kind of read. Um, so that's just like a suggestion on my end. But then B, like, what are those initial kind of frameworks and playbooks and stories you would advise that an interested scientist, founder, VC, et cetera, could kind of have in the back of their mind as they're thinking about these problems? Well, well first of all, you must have been in my staff meeting last week. We discussed it. Well, um, it's, it's more than just roadmaps, right? It starts with articulating what the vision is in any one of these categories. Because without a vision, you don't have a true north. You mm -hmm. need to find true north for each one of these categories. So what does true north look like for AI in 2035? What does true north look like, right, in advanced manufacturing for the country and for the average person? So the first thing that AFF is working on is laying out those, those visions of what is possible, what's the possibilities are. The second step, right, is to lay out potential roadmaps because there's multiple ways to get there. But if we can say, here are all the critical paths that we need to invest in, these critical nodes, these kind of capabilities, and get capital, both in terms of research dollars, government money, and investment in these areas, we can begin to lay out that road to that better alternative future. And then from, from an entrepreneur point of view, look, building companies are really hard. I mean, really, really, it's, it's, it's always been hard. It's, you know, it's kind of like conventional wisdom. All you need to do is live by Silicon Valley, have a good pitch deck and write and make sure you, you take your family's kitchen and, and garage and turn it into a business. You're not going to build a next generation fusion reactor right down in your, in your kitchen. That's a different way of thinking about the problems so you actually the playbook has to involve multiple parties in the very beginning how to uh, how to get resources necessary to pursue your idea right train them up on how to build a company right how to make sure the technical foundations are strong who do you partner with so the old program like everybody's on their own and we can just go do it at y combinator the Y Combinator of the future needs to provide much of that support, much of that infrastructure, that networking, the, the understanding of finance, sources of financing that are necessary to build out these new technologies. Otherwise, you'll never get it off the ground. And so AFF, the reason why we're, we are doubling down on things like venture studios, and we're doing them in some cases in partnering with corporate America, is because we're trying to stitch together those resources, right? We're, we're out there on the government side, trying to get the government to say, hey, use your dollars wisely. Use your ability to buy things wisely. Use your investments in R&D wisely, right? Organize around these visions of where things could be. You know, if you're gonna do chips, you got $52 billion to deploy. $52 billion is not enough. You know, one next generation fab is, 25 to 30 billion dollars so that so you're going to need to figure out a way to leverage that money up lever it up and you got to get all the talent around there to really to take that that capital to actually build something that's new and differentiated so what you said is the right thing right it, it is 
If we do not articulate what that possibilities are, we do not lay out those roadmaps and have people understand opportunities and risks. Hope is not a plan. It's not a strategy. We won't get there. And we need to do it the American way, which is here's the mountain, not here's the directive. Here's a direction, not necessarily an order, right? And to publish it so everybody can look around and say, you know what? This is great. I believe in this or I think I can get there better and faster using a different approach. That's all goodness. But we need to start that dialogue. And at the end, we always need to bring it back to the American people, which is how is it going to affect your life? Because we never had that conversation in tech. When we sat there in 1984, right, with the Apple Macintosh, we didn't have a discussion about how this technology would change the way news and information is being portrayed. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about the balkanization, right, of data and information or the exploitation of, of personal um, information. And we didn't talk about the social unrest that could happen or the addictive nature that social network had because, you know, we didn't want to talk about that stuff. We better talk about this stuff on the next iteration. So last two or three questions. So the first question is just one that came to mind when you were describing the objective of InQtao as preventing Pearl Harbors. What I instantly thought of is the fact that when it came to the actual Pearl Harbor that came about in the early 21st century, that being 9-11, it's, it's box cutters and non-reinforced um, cockpits on airplanes. So the definition of Stone Age, not Stone Age, but just like box cutters, it's a knife, it's something sharp, and then something that could have been adjusted in the 40s or 50s. Um, so when it comes to these problem sets that we're focused on here, it seems as if we either think too big or we think too small. I just like to hear your reaction to that because that just that instantly came to mind when you described the framing of the efforts. Yeah, you know, I think I think you gotta always put yourself in the framework of um if there's a system or there's a set of rules out there, and it could be like a simple set of rules, like a a, a football game. Mm -hmm. Right. And your your job as the coach is to figure out in this set of rules, how can you beat the system? Well, there's huge incentives for anybody to beat the system. Right. And we're seeing that in Ukraine right now. Right. I mean, you, you know, it's not just box cutters. It's like kids who were like racing drones are suddenly the decisive factor on the tactical battlefield as we speak today. Right. It, it, it isn't the stealth F-35 that's going in mm -hmm. and like winning the day in the, in the Ukraine. Um, it's like what's going on in Gaza right now. Right. How do you deal with tunnels and how do you deal right in information and information campaign war that you, know, you think you're fighting a battle like a physical battle. Right. You know, a kinetic battle. And the other guy is thinking they're playing an information battle. Mm -hmm. And and so you had to first recognize the different intense motivation and victory conditions for everybody in that world. Now, it still takes big technology to solve some of these really critical problems. We're not going to solve climate, right, with, you know, more green trash trash bags. Not to say, you know, recycling isn't important, but that's, it's not the thing that's going to drive us going forward. So you need to think lofty. You got to have the big ideas, the aspiration ideas. You got to go for it, like going to the moon, right? Going for fusion power, going for, you know, positive uses of generative AI. At the same time, as you point out from the risk side, what are the things that we're not considering? What are the, what's the opportunity? You know, we build out these systems that could be, you know, today we worry about cybersecurity. We you know, the multi-billion dollar industry, right? Cybersecurity, right? Right. Imagine an AI trust marketplace. I think AI trust and AI security will be bigger than cybersecurity within 10 years. Because if the whole world is operating on algorithms and data on these intelligent systems, the way you get an intelligent system to do what you wanted to do is you poison it, you retrain it, or you you know create situations where there's ambiguity and the AI can't figure out what to do. 
So, so those, you know, that's their version of a box cutter of the future. Yeah. Right? Their box cutter of the future is like how to break somebody's AI. And it might be so, as simple as a black tape on a stop sign. So the AI can't recognize it. So the final two questions that are basically kind of actually kind of tied together. Um, by ignoring your your experience in the video game industry, Hasbro, et cetera, I think we may have missed an opportunity to kind of put a lot of listeners to this podcast like in your shoes, in the sense that I, I actually get a high volume of questions where people are asking the following to say, hey, I'm interested in these issues. The stakes are high. I work in ad tech at Amazon in Austin. I'm referring to a specific set of people here, obviously. Um, <laughs> how do I be useful or pivot and engage in these sort of issues, which is quite literally like what, what you did. So can you kind of close? And then, and then the second part of this question is, the good news for people who are asking these questions is because this is a total ecosystem issue, the university, the tech company, the researcher, the VC fund, there's actually a lot of work to be done. So can you just sort of answer and close with like a response to those two questions? Yeah, let's start with the latter one. Look, it's going to be, the, the solution is a multidiscipline. Right. If 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 you are a uh, a generation from the net, you're net gen, and you're sitting there, right? You know, all I do is, you know, I I live on Twitch. Like, how can I change the world? Well, you can change the world because you have a large audience, right? You can change the world because you can organize. You can change the world because you fundamentally use technologies every single day, right, to spread information and to do it in a way that's positive. So you can take all those skills that you have used on the social web and apply it for good. So that's num number one. Number two, um, as you know, like a gamer. So when I got my job, when I finally got the decision, sitting in a room with the director of central intelligence, and I literally, I'm in the, I'm at CIA, right? I'm kind of like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, you know, I'm from Hasbro. What the heck am I doing at CIA? Right. And I'm meeting with the director of central intelligence and, and he goes, you know, Gilman, we really need you to go off and build this, this collaboration between industry and the government and you need to do it. And I go, well, well first of all, you know, I got the best job in the world. I'm the chief creative officer of Hasbro. That's Tom Hanks in the movie pig. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so the George leaned over and he said to me, well, first of all, CIA has better toys than Hasbro. <laughs> but he said, you know, but you take a step back, the things that you've been doing in simulation and technology, right? It's not that different here. You're, you're, you're working on things like Falcon and civilization. Well, we do the same thing here. The only difference is there's no reset button and it's for real. And so Many of the things we're doing that we did in the entertainment and gaming world, right? That's the way the world works today, right? Mm -hmm. You know, virtual reality, right? Is when you wear an F-35 helmet and you're looking through an aircraft, right? That's not that different than you putting on the Oculus looking through your legs. You know, it's the same technical base. The, the most important thing that we bring to the table though is optimism right if you, if you take a look at the uh at least in the gaming community which is a little bit different than some of the other social web fundamentally gamers are optimists right because we're playing that like win the game <laughs> mm -hmm. and um that optimism is necessary at all levels of government and social development in this new technology age what are the possibilities? How do we use this for good? How do we communicate, right, appropriate uses? How do we make sure it's fair and it's equitable? How do we make sure that this is done in a way that moves the ball forward, right, in our view of how the way the world could be a better place for all of us, not just for some of us? If we do that, we win, right? Because, low. engineers are engineers. So they're going to build stuff. Technologists or technologists, science scientists are going to discover stuff. Okay, but once that is done, how it gets used matters, mm -hmm. right? And that use is dictated by people who have a voice. And so, my my last kind of response to your question is, it is a responsibility, particularly of everybody in this next coming generation who's going to build the next great technology 
to have a voice. If everybody has a voice, we'll get there. If only a handful of people have the voice, we'll just repeat the mistake that we made in 1984. Well said, Gilman Louis. Thank you for joining me on The Realignment. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.